Hello, and welcome to the official podcast of Bishop Malcolm Smith. These teachings are recorded live each week and provided not only here on the podcast, but at youtube.com. Simply go to youtube.com and look for Malcolm Smith webinars in the search engine there. We also want to invite you to go to www.malcolmsmith.org. There you will find other teachings by Malcolm, including books, videos, and MP3 downloads. And now, with this week's teaching, Bishop Malcolm Smith. The Lord be with you. And we are looking in these days at what is commonly called the Lord's Prayer. And we're looking at the second line. And if you want to find that in the scripture, it's Matthew's Gospel, chapter 6. And verse 9, when Jesus says, in this manner or in this way, in this fashion, pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And once we come to that, hallowed be your name, we are coming to two words that we're unfamiliar with to the max in terms of what they mean in the scripture. And so, adjust your mind, call on the Holy Spirit to open the eyes of your heart that we might understand what this says, because this is the very first request of the prayer. Our Father who is in heaven, and now the first request of the prayer, right at the top, and in that sense governs what is going to come Hallowed be your name. First of all, um, look, look at the heart of that sentence, which is name. Hallowed be your name. And of course, if you have read the scripture um, in the Old Testament as well as the New, you will know that the expression name is a great part of scripture. Uh, and we have to understand that the Hebrew people did not use the term name as we do. I mean, when we speak of name, we usually use it as a handle. It's to differentiate me from any other human beings when you call me Malcolm. And, and so that's my name, just in the sense of a sound by which I will be identified, called, and recognize that you want me. Or to append my name to a document and say, yes, I, this individual human, has read this and approve it. Uh, it's just that. It's a handle. I can think of no better way of saying it. But once I come into the world of the Bible, and by that I mean it's, this isn't just something unique to the Bible. It's unique to the people who populated the days and the centuries of when the Bible was written. To them, a name was, what, limitlessly more than just a handle. And so we've talked about this before, so I will not spend too much time, but enough to say a person's name in the Bible, which I might say, although it has a sound to us, some of those um, names, the, the sounds of the name, like, shall I say, Abraham, um, 
That's that's dropped into English. We call people Abraham today, uh, and it's just that's it. We say the sound, but actually, in the Hebrew language, Abraham and I'll say all of the other names in Scripture. That's not quite true, but the names in Scripture they all are little sentences in the Hebrew language. Persons were called by a sentence. And the sentence was a doorway into who they are. It was a window into their very heart. And and so a person went through life with with this little sentence that defined him and defined her. It, it was a, a sentence that describes who this person actually is. It was the reality of the person and when they knew their name they were they felt it was their destiny to live up to their name to live in accord with their name whatever that little sentence might say and and so over the years they indeed became their name and their name described them and so then, at that point, the person is revealing their name in what they do or do not do, uh, in, the, in every aspect of their relationship with others. They are defining, they are displaying their name. That's how it is. You, you could say that a person's name was their reputation. Their name was their fame. It it was the resume of who they were, what they'd done. They had lived up to their name. Now, when we take all of this over to God, you will, if you've read the Old Testament and the New, you, you will find that there's a lot that is there in the Scripture about God revealing His name. And to speak uh, sort of casually of the 21st century, as you would just read it, you would think that his telling us his name and revealing his name seems to be a big deal. And indeed it is. Although if we look at it as Westerners, it isn't. So they just knew his name. But if you understand every time that God revealed his name, it was not giving people a handle by which to address him, but rather it was a window into who he is. He is saying, I have something of my heart to share with you, and therefore I give you my name. And then as the years went by, he would say, now you're ready for something else. And he would reveal more of his name. He is gradually exposing his innermost being as the people are able to handle it. The name of God is progressively revealed in the Old Testament. And that name that God gives, let let me put it, it's his reputation. His name is what he will inevitably and always do and be. This is who he is, and because he's God, he cannot be any other. And so his name becomes of tremendous importance. Here is God's reputation. 
Here is the way I can expect God to act. And it's not a human expectancy, it's an expectancy that's rooted in the being of God who cannot lie. It's his name. And, of course, we could, some have, um, looked at, at this particular scripture and, and gone back to all the names that God revealed of himself in the Old Testament and, and built a, a beautiful picture of that. I'm not going there. It's been done before. And, and I, I believe there's more to this than that. But, it, but it's there. Uh, you, you, and it's still true to this day. Whatever God has revealed of himself, that's his reputation. And he will always, always act in accord with what he has said his name is. You, you've read the scripture it's one that is not as widespread as others, but it's over the place in the Old Testament, where God says that he will do such and such. He will act in such and such a way for his name's sake. Remember that? He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. That, that is, God said, this I will do for you because of who I am. This way I will act in your life, not because of who you are necessarily right now, but because of who I am. I do it for my namesake, for my reputation, because this is who I am, and this is the way I act. So, among persons, but especially when I come before God, we expect him to live up to his name. We anticipate. This is the essence of faith. We expect and we anticipate that he is going to live up to his name, that he's going to act in accord with the person he says he is. Now, again, when we come to the name of God, and this does wash over into people, but I'll leave that there. When we come to God and his name, hear me carefully, to say the name of God was in fact to call upon and to request and to realize his immediate presence. See, let me say it again. It's very important. This is not a handle. This is not like saying, hey, Charlie, or Fred, or Margaret. No. When God gives us his name, he's opening his essential person to us. This is who he is. So to call on that name is to realize, to be in the presence of, of the person in the light of who he says he is. Please understand that. Uh, I, I could spend so long there. To call on the name of God is not just throwing a name into the air, but to be realizing, actually entering into the reality that that person his immediate presence is here now. So when a person says Jesus, that, that, that's not um, sort of just saying a name of history. 
but it is the declaration of the name and therefore the realizing that he is now here. Okay, that's all wrapped up in the Hebrew understanding of name. In fact, if you read, and you'll read this in Deuteronomy, though I I know many of you would have problems reading those first five books of the Bible, but in Deuteronomy and elsewhere, but especially there, he speaks of certain places where he will put his name. And he delineates uh, Jerusalem, and therefore in the temple, he said he would put his name. That is the immediate presence of God who has revealed himself in his various names, His presence will be unusually made manifest there in Jerusalem in the Old Testament days. And so the tabernacle and the temple, the city of Jerusalem, you said, I'll put my name there, I'll put my name. And there again in Numbers chapter 6, when a person was blessed by the high priest in the morning hours and night hours. It's, the Lord says, in these words of blessing, I will put my name on the people. That is, you will be enshrouded with my presence. It's good stuff, isn't it, you see? Um, and we who have called on the name of the Lord, there it is again, you see, you call on the name. You call on who God is. And he responds according to who he says he is. And then the persons who called in the Old Testament were delineated as those who call on the name of the Lord. That's who they were. They were identified. They stood out from others as these people have not only called on the name of the Lord, but rather they are called by his name. Their identity was wrapped up with God. Well, um, to, to such an extent, all of this, that the Hebrew people who had, well, there's no other word for it, sheer terror of actually verbalizing the name of God, they would substitute the name of God for simply the name And you'll find it once or twice in the Old Testament where it speaks of the name. So so real, the name equaled the presence of this God that they could simply call him the name, the name. And incidentally, though it doesn't apply to us really here, um, they would speak of the presence, the presence uh, and, and the Hebrew word for presence is face. So to be in the face of God. Uh, so they didn't say his name, they just said the face or the name. Then you'll, you'll read the other expression, to know his name. To know his name. That, that word know, of course, is that word of intimacy, that personal relationship. And so to know his name it is a phrase which means that you are in a deep heart relationship with the person who bears that name. So to know the name of God means that you are in relationship with him. 
And in today's world, I feel the need just to make reference that to know the name doesn't mean that you know about it. Look, can I just insert this quickly? That to know God, to know his name, it means to know the heart of God and to be in a functioning relationship with him. So it doesn't mean information. Oh, hear me. 21st century peoples, hear me. To know the name of God does not mean that you have information about God. This is not education and a chalkboard and textbooks on God. You can go through five theological seminaries and come out the other end without a shred of knowing God. Knowing God is relationship. Not knowing about him with intellect, it's relationship of the heart. Nor, I might say, is the, the, the blabbing the sound of the name of God as if that is going to make things happen, as if we're now dealing with power. No, that's magic. Satan gives spells, gives the names of power. It's all satanic, just just spells and say this ten times and... No, to know the name of God is not to know him as one you use, but rather a love relationship. To know the name then is to trust the person. It is to give yourself away to them. To be and to live in harmony with the person, their character and their purpose. I, I, I pretty well said it, but I, I'll say it clearly here that there's a progression in the giving of the names of God. If you start at the beginning of the Bible, they, they're given out. And, and so uh, the, the heavy emphasis in the book of Genesis is, is the Hebrew name of El Shaddai. Uh, which, which essentially means the, the one who suckers me and nourishes me, cares for me like a mother. But then in Exodus, remember, Moses asked, what is your name? And received that mystery name of the I am that I am. Yahweh is the closest we can get to pronounce it. And then on and on through the scripture, there's additions to that name. There's emphasis on other like Adonai. And as they scattered into the nations, then El Elyon, the Most High God, and so on and so on. There's a progression that moves on majestically. <laughs> yeah, majestically. Um, but it took 3,000 years. Have you ever thought about that? From when God began to reveal himself to the broken, darkened, blinded race we sprang from Adam. Adam's broken, fallen race in such pitch darkness, believing the lie of Satan. There's the first shaft of light as God reveals his name and says, this is who I am. Took 3,000 unfolding years. 
as there's revelations, sometimes through prophets, at other times, and actually many times through action, when God did something and revealed, we never thought he would do that. And he says, no, but now you know my name. I am the God who does this. And so through word and through action in history, he revealed his name. You could say those 3,000 years, the Old Testament is the ABC. God is giving just as much as they can handle. He's revealing, this is who I am. This is who I am. And let me say it again, it is so important. He didn't do it by lecture. He, he didn't do it in a theological classroom. They, they come to know this in, in the upsets of life. It came to know it confronting situations. And there God revealed himself. They came to know him and relate to him within the pressures of life. It was a discovery of this God. And so to the extent they had experienced him and knew this is who he is he showed it to us to that extent they knew his name and then as we come into the new testament jesus is the final revelation of the name of god that is Jesus is the final flinging open of the door into the heart of God. Jesus is the final opening the window into the deepest purposes of God. Only he's totally different because he's not a prophet talking about God and pointing to God. He doesn't reveal God as it had been done in the Old Testament, he himself is God, revealing God from inside our humanness. And he does it living out a terribly ordinary life in the daily grind of life in a third world country, in a third world village called Nazareth. And in that, he works it out and he reveals that God is Father. And he came from Father, his Son. And he's empowered by God the Holy Spirit. He defined the invisible God inside our visible world. And he would say, and he says to you and I, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He said, God is exactly like me. I am the very image of God. And so John 1.18 says that he is the exegesis, he's the exposition. He, he is the one who is the explainer of who God is, for he is God from God to tell us what God is like. And when he prayed that last great prayer of John chapter 17, verse 6, he says that I have explained to them, I have made manifest, I, I, I've shown to them, 
your name, Father. He said, I've told them, I've showed them, I've been who you are. And so the one who is giving us this prayer, he is the revealer of the name. He's the one who tells us what God is really like. And in the cross and resurrection, we finally know the extent of the love that this name is giving to us. Okay, put that on hold. I'll be back there in a minute. But it, then it says this name, hallow, hallow this name. Now, probably of all words in the New Testament, this one we're most unfamiliar with. And I will say positively that Satan stole this name. It must be awfully important for Satan to steal it and to give a day and call it Halloween and to have a population dress up as witches and evil and corruption, monstrous, distorted, twisted humans and call that Hallow. The name of this must be terribly important for Satan to go to such lengths as to twist the minds of Westerners to what this really means. What does it mean? Hallow is an awfully old word, but it's one of those words which is a little bit difficult to bring up to date. So let me have a go. It means to recognize and to declare and make holy. Okay, well, let me stop there because that's another word that has been distorted and twisted. Holy. It means, basically, to set apart from. It means to be other different, I mean, to the nth degree, different from that which is common, different to the nth, nth, nth degree from the creature, other, different, separated, away from. And so to hallow means to declare whatever you hallow as separate, holy, other and other to the point where I now do reverence that is I give praise and worship in fact this word means in one of its aspects to stand in awe of do you know what awe is See, that's another word that's being diluted to the point of meaninglessness today. I don't know how many times uh, teens and twenties will say to me, that's awesome, man. Um, and they might be talking about a green mosquito. It's awesome, awe. Do you know what it means? It means your breath is taken away. You are speechless. You don't have any file for what is happening. You have been taken beyond creature knowing. And you are looking at the unknowing. You are looking at that which you cannot fully define. 
You might even fall on your knees. You might even fall on your face. Or wonder, speechless. Because you've confronted, you've had experience of the other, the separate, that which is beyond the human. And so it's got the idea of fear, but not, not bad fear, not terror. I mean, it's that fear that I am treading where I don't have human vocabulary to tell you what's going on. Uh, it gives me holy goosebumps. That's holy. That's, that's holy. That's hallow. See, I, I know this is difficult for some to grasp because in this religious 21st century, holy has a very different meaning and therefore a hallow goes along with it. Come on. I, I don't know the persons to whom I speak, but I've got a jolly good idea that there's a number of you listening now that when I say the word holy be honest now, it sounds dull, holy, dull. Holy? That means a list of rules, doesn't it? A whole bunch of things you can't do and you've got to do. It's like holy. It's like being put in religious detention. Because it's always associated with a God who's irritated with me. He's a no-fun God. There's never the quiver of a smile on his face. Holy. Reminds me of a high court judge with little pince-nez glasses on the end of his nose, glaring down at me and said, you did it again. Holy. A God who is obsessed with my failures and always cooking up new ways to... Do me good with some pain and hurt and crashing down of my life. You say you've never thought of God like that. Then thanks be to God you didn't go to my church. Um, that's my earliest recollections. When they said holy, there was always something that associated all what I've just said with it. But no, no, no. The Holy One, the Hallowed One. Yes, He's other. You bet He's other. He is the person, the infinite person, the person from whom all other persons find personhood, real person, who loves with a love you have never seen or dreamed or imagined among human beings. Love is this person. And when we come into the presence of that love, there's an awe and a speech of what can you say? I've never met this before. It doesn't make sense to me. 
You see, I don't know if you thought about it, but in the scripture, love and grace and goodness and kindness and gentleness and all those alike words, they are not just word ideas. They are the person of the Holy One. He is so other. He is so separated because he is love. He is goodness. He is kindness. Grace is not a word in a dictionary. Grace is the way God is. He's holy. And you won't find anything like it on the face of the earth. He's other to the point where we hardly know what to do with this. And that love that is so other than any love we've ever known is of such molten passion that it has an inner necessity must to reach out and share and bring us into the embrace of that love. So the idea that God doesn't like you, that God's angry with you, that God is irritated and pissed off at you. That's pagan. The Holy One. He so loves you with an unearthly love that he is, and I use the word in its fullest extent, passionate. For passion means to suffer. Passionate means to act even if I suffer. God would rather die than not have you within the embrace of his love. This idea that holy means condemnation, punishment, exclusion, non-acceptance by this God that scares you spitless. The very Bible contradicts that. Read it in Hosea chapter 11. Um, and, and he gives a list of all of Israel's sins. And then he says that he's not going to punish them because he is the Holy One. Huh. Interesting, isn't it? Or... As I said, when people confront this God, they're, they're speechless. He is limitlessly too good to be true, but he is true. He is, in fact, the only true. He's the only reality. And we respond with wonder outside of our brain. We don't know what to do with this. That's why people rush back to religion where they're in a comfort zone, a God who punishes. Now, I can live with that. But this God who loves me? In fact, do you remember in Nehemiah, in chapter 8, and the people began to weep. Yeah, it was wholesale weeping. I know many churches that would have said, boy, we, we've got a revival going on. These people were weeping because they had broken God's law. And they stopped the whole service. And Nehemiah said, stop this. This is a holy day and therefore rejoice for the joy of the Lord is your strength. 
holy means the wonderment, the speechlessness, the rapture of joy that God is such a God. And linked to this word is often the expression living God. Have you ever read that in the Old Testament? God is the living God. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I've told you before, but I still chuckle over it. When I was being interviewed on a certain occasion and when asked what was my message to the world and I responded that I went around the world teaching people the love of God. And the interviewer looked at me, you know, with that look for the longest time and then said, how sweet, how sweet. Oh, I said, lady, <laughs> the love of God is not sweet. The love of God will turn your life upside down, inside out, make you into a new creation. He's the living God. And, and the idea behind that is huh, you can't tiptoe around him. He, he's not this ancient crone sitting in a divine rocking chair, smiling benignly at his grandchildren. No, he's the living God. His love will not put up with his children being hurt. You could say that's, in one sentence, the whole story of the Bible. It's the living God. Here in Texas, where I live, uh, one of the mottos, you'll find it along the roadsides throughout Texas, it says, don't mess with Texas. And, and, and you've got that image of the Texan with his gun, don't mess with Texas. It's sort of a message to governments and we don't want your interfering hand here. We'll look after our own affairs. Don't you mess with Texas. Well, that's sort of the idea of the living God. When I say he is love, he's not milk toast. He's, he, he's not the wimp. He's called the roaring lion of the tribe of Judah. Living. He's not a paper God. You know, I'm sorry, but that's the impression you get. I, I, I was out in last Sunday around noontime when all the church folk came out and they were in the store where I was shopping. And of course, they stood out like sore thumbs all over the place, all dressed very unusual for Texas and, and all... But they were so miserable, and they were snapping, and they were rude to the clerks. You couldn't satisfy them. And, and you know, when I come into the scripture, I see the God who is love. But not only the God who is love, but the God who empowers to be love and impart love and spread love and leave a wake of love and joy and peace behind them. You know when God has been among you in the midst of his people, the living God, 
He doesn't leave unhappiness and bitterness and no, no, no. He leaves tangible, physically imparted love. He's the living God. I say again, not to be studied and debated, but to be worshipped, obeyed and trusted. See, maybe I could say the opposite of hallow or holy is too profane. Well, you say, I don't know what that means either. No. What happened in the Garden of Eden? The very first thing that happened in the Garden of Eden was that Adam was blinded to this God I've just been talking about. And his mind was twisted, distorted, and, what can I say, injected with lies. The best way I can tell you what I mean by that, the other day, Nancy made um, a dish I mean, absolutely delicious. Uh, and it was a kind of stew. wasn't stew, but it was kind. And into that stew, she put some garlic and jalapenos with the result that everything in it had that taste. The, the jalapeno, the garlic had penetrated so that everything in the bowl was affected by it. Everything was jalapenized. You could taste it on everything. Well, that's what happened in the Garden of Eden, that the lie lieized the whole of the human and Adam didn't see God as he really was anymore. He was blind. Instead, he saw a God who was made after his own image. In fact, he made that God up in his imagination based on the lies. A God who punished, and that's all he was interested in, a God who was angry, a, a God who condemned, a God who would hunt you down, a God who would make everything go wrong for you because that's the way he is. That's, that was Adam's God, a mean God, cruel, vicious. His glory was that he got you in the end. A God who wasn't for us, but rather he was for himself. Now once you think of this, once you have imagined, thought a God, built a God in your mind that is other than the real one, that in the Bible is called idolatry. And in ancient days, and many people today, take those thoughts and turn it into stone and wood and whatever. 
That's idolatry. That's profaning. That's the opposite of hallowing or recognizing his infinite otherness, making a God that's just like a souped-up human being. See, the word repentance is a word which essentially means that you have a total, radical enlightenment of mind so that you now think and align your thoughts with the true God. Okay, put that on hold. Jesus. Jesus, I said, is the name of God come to live in our flesh. He is God among us. And he is the revelation in human terms. Revealing in himself, not outside from like a prophet or or from some event happening, but from inside our humanity, he reveals finally and fully who God is, the Holy One, his name. Did you hear me? From inside our humanity, we, we, do, do you understand when we say God became flesh, he didn't become something different to us. He became flesh. He became our brains, our emotions, our imagination, our intellect. He got inside us, which means that he got inside our darkness. He got inside our fallenness. He got inside that blindness. He got inside Adam's flesh and Adam's mind. And from inside Adam's mind and flesh, he reveals the true God. He reveals that God is love. In fact, he is determined as the image of God. He is the image of That is, he said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He is the exact image of God. Not a little bit off. Not not just reaching. No. He is God imprinted into our humanity. He himself is the good news from the Father telling us, what God is really like. And at the same time, at the same time, he reveals what humankind, human, was always intended to be. Remember in Genesis, it says we are made in the image of God. Well, Jesus is the image of God. And mankind, as we know, is that broken, twisted, fallen Jesus comes and says, this is who God truly is. This is what he's like. And I'm revealing to you what the Father wants for you. And so Jesus stands in our shoes 
looks through our eyes, hears our report full of lies concerning who God is and the meaning of life and everything else, and he steadfastly refuses to believe in Adam's God and refuses to believe in the lies of Satan and the lies of the humans that talk in Satan's name. Or to put it another way, he stood in our shoes and he hallowed the name of God for us and as us. Instead believed in his Father, the true God who is love and holy. And therefore taking us in his arms, he repented of the lie and idolatry. He trusted his father's faithfulness when every circumstance and every word of human seemed to contradict it. He obeyed the father when every self for myself human flesh said that is ridiculous. And the final obedience was in Gethsemane when he said, not my will, but yours be done. That is, he is going to take the human race, you and I included, our Adam flesh and our Adam mind, and he's going in his own person to take us to death. And in resurrection, he will rebirth us. We were born again as humans, as Jesus came out of the tomb. That's the good news. God came, and in Jesus Christ, forever hallowed his name, and revealed who he is, and dealt with our sin problem. So what do we do? The good news is, I mean, have you heard, have you, this is the truth, have you heard the news that God has already dealt with your sin? Have you heard the news that you were included into Jesus Christ and you came out of the tomb with him? Have you heard the news that he took you into the heavens and presented you to Father and said, I got him, I rescued her, we're home. Have you heard that news? That's the gospel. What can we, we call on his name? That is, we call, his name is, this is what he's done. This is who he is, this incredible God. The Holy One came and lived so close that we could touch him. We could pass the pepper to him. And he laid hold upon us. And he took our death and in so doing took us to death. We call on his name. How do you do that? In baptism it says you are baptized into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, into the name of this God who has come to us. And the Holy Spirit comes into us 
and reproduces within us the very life of Christ. He brings us into the relationship with the now, Jesus. So, huh, he reveals. We believe, we believe the revelation that came to us in Jesus, God is love. And therefore we repent, we cast aside all those foul, pagan, satanic myths of a God who is not for us. And we dare to believe with the belief of Jesus, who is our life. We believe what he believed concerning the Father, which he also revealed. Do you understand that? You don't have to try and get faith. Jesus believed in the Father's love, and we believe with Jesus. We believe his report. We believe into the love of the Father. We believe in his victory over evil that he really did take us to death. He really did rebirth us in resurrection. And so it becomes a first request, hallowed be your name. What, what does that mean when we pray? When we pray for the unconverted, or when we pray for our own situations of failure, we pray, hallowed be your name. That is in this situation with this person we declare that you have laid hold upon them that this person is already marked with the blood of Christ and now let that be so let your name the incredible God you are be made manifest in this person this place this situation when we see the hand of Satan in the affairs of men, we say, hallowed be your name. Let your name that was revealed in Jesus, who smashed and shattered the authority of Satan, let that be demonstrated in this place. And let the beautiful name of love and joy and peace come here. Hallowed be your name. And we stand against the temptation which would define God by what is happening to us. So when things happen that are untoward, Satan's temptation is blame God. This is what he's really like. If he loved you, you wouldn't be in this situation. And we defy Satan by saying with Jesus, that you are good and you are love and you are now with us and you are now working out your love purpose. Hallowed be your name. We praise you and we refuse the poison arrows of Satan shot into our mind. We will not define God by circumstance. We will not define God by what other people have said or have done. And so in their abuse of us and in their words that cut us, 
Satan said, see, you were abandoned, weren't you? And this is really who you are. This is the dirty creature you are. This is the unworthy wretch you are. And on and on he goes. You know, you, you've heard it too. But we refuse to believe in Adam's God. And we refuse to believe the lies of Satan. And we cut straight through, leaning on the faith of Jesus that God is love. He is with us. And he will never leave us nor forsake us. We hallow his name. We declare who he is. And we refuse to speak the lies of Satan. Hallowed be your name. Well, I'm going to stop there. Um, this, this prayer spills over. In fact, every request sort of spills over. But I, I think um, I, I've said enough as to where this stands as the first great request of the prayer. But we will be back to look at it some as it spills over. But I, do, I want you to begin to use this. You see, as I say, you can simply say, hallowed be your name. If you know what it means, then you can sum it up in just that little sentence. On the other hand, you can spend, as I have and many, many have, you can spend an hour just on hallowed be your name. You can spend an hour just singing praise to the name, the person of God revealed in Jesus. All the praise and the worship that is poured out of the church to him, that, that's, we hallow his name. We declare with the energy of words, we speak our words into creation, which declare his beauty and his honor. You see, we, we can go through the situations that are all around us, pressuring us, and over each one we can say, hallowed be your name. Let your name be revealed here. Let your name be glorified. And we can spend as much time just bathing in that reality that he's placed his name in us. The name he placed in Jerusalem, the name he placed in the Holy of Holies has now been placed in us through the Holy Spirit. God's immediate presence dwells within us. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. I could spend a lot of time there. So you see this little sentence is very broad in its application. May the Holy Spirit open our eyes to see that. And now the blessing of God who is almighty love, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, His blessing, His empowering presence fill you Fill your life, embrace you in all dimensions of your being, granting you his peace that passes human understanding, his joy which is your strength, upholding you in his love. Let it be so. Amen.